Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this interview, we speak with the author, ghostwriter, and podcaster, Daniel Paisner. New York Magazine once called Daniel the world's most prolific ghost, and for good reason. As a ghostwriter, Paisner has taken on the real-life persona of dozens of celebrities, politicians, athletes, and explorers. He has written over 70 books, including 17 New York Times bestsellers. Daniel is also an author in his own right, having published seven of his own nonfiction and fiction books. In this interview, we ask Daniel about his career, from landing his first ghostwriting job through to Daniel's ghostwriting work today, including the process he goes through to unearth the narrative. For example, he tells us what day one on the job might look like and how he goes on to connect with his client to write their story. And he gives us examples from some of his work, including his time with Serena Williams, Whoopi Goldberg, and Anthony Quinn. He also talks about the pay in ghostwriting and how journalists and other writers might break into ghostwriting today. Finally, Daniel tells us about his latest book, Balloon Dog. He tells us about how his ghostwriting work helps him with his own work and rules that he follows when he writes for himself. This was a great chat with a legendary and very experienced writer. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Daniel Paisner. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writer Salon, Daniel. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Parol. Nice to see you both. Well, we're so honored to have you here with us, Daniel. Loving your bookshelf behind you. And also, I noticed to your left-hand side there, there are two bats, two baseball bats. And we noticed baseball is a through line through some of your work, your nonfiction work, and even some of your ghostwriting work. And I'm curious if you can tell us about your love for baseball and go for you. Well, it's our cricket, Matt, as you know. It's it's America's game. I grew up going to games with my dad, and it's sort of become woven into the fabric of my life and then later into the life of my son. I now have a little grandbaby, and I was able to take him to his first New York Mets game last year, which was kind of great. And there's something about the game that I find is soothing. It's poetic. It kind of connects the dots of our at least our recent American history and it's a great way to just sort of lose myself in the rhythms of a pastime that has occupied our shared attentions for over a century. And plus, it's just the game is filled with colorful characters and great backstories. And uh, it's wonderful. And But as my kids will tell you, it's boring as hell to watch. <laughs> so um, so there's that, too. <laughs> but yes, there's a lot of baseball in this office and there's been a lot of baseball on my bookshelf which, um, you know, one of the great things about pursuing a writing life when you have some success is you can steer that life towards subjects that are of interest. 
So as soon as I could find a baseball player who'd throw in with me on a book, I was all over it. That's great. And today we're going to be digging into a lot of your writing as a ghostwriter and also for your own work. But I'd love to turn to your early writing life with just a simple question. Of, do you remember when you first made money from your writing? Maybe the first dollar you made. My first dollar was a $15 paycheck. It was actually a $30 fee, but I shared a byline with a high school buddy of mine. Together, we were the editor of our high school newspaper. And we started freelancing for the local community newspaper. And they sent us out on a story to cover, I think, I mean, got to realize this was probably 45 years ago. It was a dispute over a diplomatic immunity case involving an ambassador from who knows where. But the two of us wrote this story and we each got $15. And that was the greatest feeling in the world to get 15 bucks. And then this newspaper started sending me out on, you know, real assignments. They sent me to interview Arlo Guthrie when he was performing at a theater near my town. And I was a kid. I was 17, 18 years old and the chance to go backstage and and pick the brain of a musician I admire uh, himself with a great backstory and a family history was a real goose. And I found right away that this was something I might want to try to find a way to apply for a living. And when you thought about that future of writing, what did you imagine? You know what? I had no idea. But Parallel, back in the 1970s, a, a writing landscape looks a lot different than it does today. You know, there were a substantial number of newspapers and magazines. There were outlets for my work in a way that there really no longer is, at least at that entry level. When I hear from young people today looking to pursue a career in writing, I don't know whether to sound encouraging or discouraging. You know, on the one hand, you want to nurture the creative impulse and tell them to go for it. But on the other hand, you sort of feel duty bound to say, look, it's pretty hard to find a way to monetize what you do and how to find readers who are going to give a shit about what you do and publications that are going to want to take you on and shine a light on what you do. So back then, you know, this was right after the Watergate era. So I suppose my real thought was that I would be Woodward and Bernstein. I would probably be both Woodward and Bernstein, you know, and I would have a swashbuckling career as an investigative reporter. I disabused myself of that notion pretty quickly. But in the beginning, I thought I'd be a newspaper man. Was there a particular moment early on that was pivotal for you? Like you got your 15 bucks from that piece. Sounds like there were, you were being sent on some exciting things to cover. Was there a particular piece of early feedback, maybe another paid gig that encouraged you to stick with it? Earlier than that, probably even before the first paid assignment, I did get some really cool encouragement from an English teacher in high school, early in high school, like maybe ninth or 10th grade. So maybe that makes me 14, 15 years old. And somebody who seemed to know what she was talking about told me that I was good at this. And it's a tremendously validating thing when you're a young person trying to figure out what the rest of your life is going to look like to be told that you have a talent that you might not have recognized yourself. But what I also recognize that what she said I was good at kind of came easily to me. You know, so I'd see my buddies sweating over a five page essay and I would just sit down and kind of knock it out like it was nothing at all. So when you couple encouragement with extreme laziness, that really was my signal to maybe start thinking of this as a career. It came easily to me. And if I was good at it, then sure, well, I'll, I'll see if I can ride that for a little bit. When I went away to school, when I went to college, uh, I'm sure a lot of your your participants, you know, they probably looked at 
schools, or maybe they have kids that look at schools and they look at the athletic program, or maybe their kids are pre-med or they were going to be pre-med. You look at very specific aspects of a university life and what that campus might have to offer. I only looked at student newspapers. When I went to visit a campus when I was 18 years old, I sat myself down. I introduced myself to the campus newspaper editors. I sat with them as they put the paper to bed on closing night and tried to sort of soak in the vibe and imagine if I could fit myself into that room later on. And that's kind of how I determined where I went to school, not whether or not it was a lacrosse team I could play on or whether they had a great psych department. I was always jealous of people like you that both knew what you were good at early and it came easy. It's, I think I'm still figuring it out for me. But you know what? There's nothing really to be jealous of because it could be sort of the default laziness mode. You know, I just figured, why not? I wasn't that I was passionate. I didn't imagine myself in an ivory tower with leather patches on my elbow, smoking a pipe and writing. It wasn't the romantic fantasy of being a writer so much as it it seemed like as good an idea as any. Hmm. I'm curious about your career. Has it kind of been, I imagine not, but correct me if I'm wrong, like up kind of up and to the right? Or was there like a, a sea change that was a big break for you early on or earlier in your career that kind of really changed things for you? Well, what really changed things for me was this ghostwriting gig that I sort of backdoored into. You know, I have not met a ghostwriter who actually aspired to be a ghostwriter. And I would imagine that if you were to poll, you know, eight and 10 and 12 year old aspiring writers and ask them what sort of career they fashion for themselves, nobody's going to say that they want to be a collaborator or help someone else write their story. It's almost a writing career of last resort or at least in, of next resort. And I suppose if I hadn't found this path when I was relatively young, I was probably 25, 26 years old when I got my first gig, I might have abandoned ship. You know, it might have been too difficult to make a living as a writer, and I might have pivoted and found something else to do. But what I found through these collaborative assignments was, you know, the money was decent. The contracts were sort of long term. It's not like you were a freelance magazine writer hustling from assignment to assignment. I had a six month year long window to work on something with a payday commensurate with that time frame. So I really didn't have to worry about the hustle. I could do the work and then I could work on one of my own. So that really was the sea change because it kind of gave me the license to explore my own work as a writer. And then when I got good at ghostwriting or got a reputation at least as a ghostwriter and the work kept coming and I didn't really have time to do my own work as a ghostwriter, I was deep into it and lo and behold, I had a career. So that was kind of the pivot, was getting that first assignment. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got that assignment? I read somewhere that you had been a publicist at Simon Schuster yes. before that you had been a journalist. Where were you at this point? How did that assignment come about? I was still at Simon & Schuster, Parallel, and it was really dumb luck. It was absolutely dumb luck. I was lucky enough as an undergrad to win a scholarship from Simon & Schuster. The publisher of Simon & Schuster at the time, a man named Dick Snyder, had was an alum at Tufts University, and he set up a scholarship whereby he would pay for our last year of school and offer us a one-year job as sort of an apprenticeship at Simon & Schuster upon graduation. I didn't really want the job. I didn't mind the final year tuition, but I thought, what the hell, I'll apply for this thing. And what happened was, so I eventually made my way to Simon & Schuster. I put them off for a year to go to graduate school. I went to journalism school. But when I finally took them up on the job offer piece, 
it gave me tremendous portfolio. And I got to walk the halls of Simon & Schuster, a major New York City publishing house, with agency. I wasn't just some other entry-level hire. I was there as the Simon & Schuster scholar. You know, I had the endorsement and the watchful eye of the publisher behind me, of the president of the company. So doors were open to me that might not have been open to my other 20-something colleagues. And I got to meet a bunch of agents and editors and marketing people, and I kind of learned how the business worked. And I was comfortable enough in my role there that I was also able to bitch and moan and grouse and say, gee, I don't want, this is a stupid job. You guys aren't paying me anything. I don't know why I'm here. So that the bigwigs who knew me and had a vested interest in my career at this point also knew that I wasn't long for that world. And they knew that I was writing as a freelancer for local newspapers and magazines, the New York Post. I had been a stringer for the New York Times. And so they threw me a bone. They said, look, we know you really want to be a writer. They just signed Willard Scott, who some of the, your participants might remember as the happy, jolly Today Show weatherman for a generation or so. And Willard Scott was at the NBC studios across the street from Simon & Schuster. They said, go over and meet Willard. And if you guys hit it off, you can write his book. This was fine with Willard, who was a good old boy. And what the hell did he care? By the end of that day, I was writing Willard Scott's book for, and this was when, this was maybe 1986. And I think I made 25 grand. Which in $86, when you're 25, 26 years old, it was more than my Simon & Schuster salary. And I thought, well, gee, this is great. And it was enough for me to step away from the nine to five job, do that full time, and then maybe see if I can find some traction in my own work to accompany the work I was doing with Willard. Fully expecting this one assignment with Willard Scott would be a one-off. It would be my one and only but lo and behold, it led to another one. It brought me to the attention of an agent who represented that project, who soon became my agent. And I was kind of off to the races without really realizing I had stepped to the starting gate. That sounds like a line that I had written before this, but it's natural to this moment. <laughs> and of course, the story is you went on to you know, ghostwrite a number of books and you have represented, taken on the personality or the personas of so many people. And I've got, I've got this really impressive sounding list here, a world series of poker champion, a plus size supermodel, an FBI hostage negotiator, mayor of New York, a weatherman, number one ranked women's tennis player. I could go on, Oscar winner, a first daughter. So many really interesting and varied characters. And it's such a wonderful way to describe your work. But I'd love to now go behind the scenes, behind your desk. To really understand, because it's it is a bit of a mystery for many of us as to the craft, the magic that you weave in being able to create these stories on behalf of these people who have really interesting lives to share. So, first of all, do all these assignments come to you via your agent? Has that been the standard practice? That's been the standard practice over the years. I've worked with a few agents. Lately, I'm fortunate enough to be able to work with multiple agents, so that there are flows of work, or at least chances at work that come from me from different channels, which is kind of great. Very occasionally, it's worked out that I've been able to chase somebody who I thought had an interesting story to tell. The one thing I'll challenge you on in your question, though, is I'm not really creating these stories, which is one of the reasons I've been able to write so many books. You know, there is no writer's block here. At least you don't have the luxury of writer's block when you do this kind of work. The story has been lived. The story exists. You kind of know what point A to point B to point C has looked like. These people have very often lived, even if they're unknown, they've lived bookworthy lives. They've done or seen something extraordinary. They've somehow landed a book deal. 
So you kind of know what the story is. So I'm not creating that. What I'm really creating for them is a voice, helping to give structure to their story, helping them to sort of see what sort of tone they want this book to be and helping them tap the most appropriate audience in the most appropriate way. But the story itself is there, which is why I've been able to write so many of their books and so few of my own novels, because it's kind of hard to pull a story out of thin air. I find it's somewhat easier to pull it out of somebody who's experienced it. And so is it true that the the sort of overarching concept, or say it's a memoir and you're focusing on a particular period of their life, is it already been determined, the sort of rough narrative arc before you come on board? Or is that something you determine as you speak? Yes and no. I mean, obviously, if it's a prominent person, when you were listing the personas that I've adopted, you mentioned a number one ranked tennis player. That number one ranked tennis player, we should mention her name today, because that was Serena Williams. And today the news broke that she just announced on the day that we're visiting here, for those of you who are watching this later, is that she's going to step away from the game following this year's U.S. Open. So it's kind of the end of the ride for her. So when Serena came to me, for example, just use that example, it was mid-career. It was maybe 12 years ago. Clearly, the story was going to be how she got to this point in her life. And it wasn't as though we were following an outline or a pitch document. The publisher wanted to be in the Serena Williams business. If you're in the Serena Williams business and you're telling her story, you tell the story of her childhood and how she came to pick up the game and what she learned along the way. So a lot of it is dictated by the way they've lived already off the page. Sometimes the publisher will have no further idea or the subject themselves will have no further idea other than the fact that they want a book from this person. And then it falls to us together to figure out what that book is gonna be. Mm. But I've worked on all kinds of books. I've taken on projects where there's a very rigid deadline that uh, outline, I'm sorry, that we're meant to follow. And I've come on board for others where it's kind of vague and amorphous and all they want is something readable that will engage their readers. Mm. I wonder if we can dig a little bit deeper with Serena and that process. Sure. What did day one look like for you with Serena? Day one with Serena, I met her a time or two in New York. I live in New York. She doesn't, but she was passing through town. And we met in more of a business and professional setting just to see if we could stand working with each other. It is a very intimate transaction. You do have to hang with somebody over long periods of time. But then finally, before when we finally started working, I went down to Florida where she lived at the time. She shared a condo with Venus then. And I went and I watched her practice. I just kind of hung out. We went for a run together. We drove through a Taco Bell together. I was surprised that that was her post-workout meal, but there it was. And we kind of hung out in her, uh, in her house. I think we played ping pong, you know. And before I even presented myself as somebody who was working with her, I was really just sort of trying to soak up her life as much as I could. So before I took out a tape recorder, before we talked about the shape of the book and the tone of the book, we were kind of just hanging. And that probably was the whole first visit together over the course of two or three days. And then a couple weeks later, I went down to see her again. And, and then we rolled up our sleeves and got to work. I mm, love that. And then what does getting to work look like? So you've You've built rapport. You like each other enough to continue to work together. What's that first sit down look like? Well, you know, it's interesting that we're focusing on Serena here because that example is fraught. And by fraught, I mean, she grew up with a camera and a microphone pointed at her from the age of five, six, seven years old. There were so many stories that she had told into the ground that they were also almost rehearsed and committed to memory. 
And I found as I tried to capture those stories and relate them again in her voice in book form, there was something stale about them because she told them so many times. And I really wanted something fresh and I wanted something, I wanted to hear stories as if she was sharing them for the first time because I thought that's what the reader was entitled to expect. So it did take a while to get through the perfunctory stuff that we kind of needed to have, you know, the story. And I don't mean to diminish the struggle, but, you know, her family, she and her sisters did have to sweep syringes and broken glass off the public courts of Compton every day when they went to practice with their dad. I mean, that was a part of their lives. There was gang violence and drug violence and some serious shit going down on these courts on some days. And that was very much a part of her life. But I wanted to get to that place where she could tell me some of these stories with details she hadn't shared before. The substantive part of the work that I really enjoyed and that I think I brought to the task was, I thought it would be interesting for the reader to experience sort of a competition mindset through Serena's eyes. So the way the work looked when we were building those aspects of the book, we would sit down and watch video of some key matches that we were talking about in the narrative. And I wanted to be able to stop the action at some point and say, okay, Serena, what are you thinking here? What's going through your mind in this moment? I saw you put, you know, you served to her backhand side at this juncture. You hadn't done so yet in the match. What was your thinking there? Was that instinctive? Was that something that you were throwing back to, something you talked through with your coach beforehand? To me, that was an exciting part of the work. And I hope to Serena it was as well, because I don't really think she broke down her match play. And certainly she looked at game film before, but she probably never looked to interpret it and dissect it with someone from outside her sport. I wasn't her coach. I'm not a fellow tennis player. I'm not a world-class athlete. I'm some stummy, bald-headed guy from New York, you know, asking her questions that other fans would ask, any knowledgeable fan would ask. So that was the exciting part to me of what that, the nuts and bolts of that work looked like. It's interesting. You're almost, you're having to be a character study. And I imagine every book is different whether it's Serena or Damon Johns or anyone else, it's, it, what are some of the, you, you touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious with all these guests and all these subjects, what are some of the key things you're trying to uncover? Are there particular guideposts? Like what makes these person tick? I'm, I'm curious if there's something you're searching for, for each person. The first thing I search for in each case, Matt, and the common denominator, I think in all of these in all these projects is you search for the truth. You want to sort of get past that bullshit veneer that public people are conditioned to put out into the world. So that requires finding a way to get them to trust you, uh, me. I'm not there as an adversarial journalist. You know, they're used to being interviewed by somebody who might be out to trip them up or to catch them in a moment that's not flattering or, or that doesn't serve them. I'm really there to tell their story and to prop them up in ways that support their agenda. And sometimes that means helping them discover what that agenda is. But always it starts with that layer of trust and knowing what is the truth here of this moment. Let's strip away all this other stuff that you put out into the world and tell me what is really going on. And so that sometimes means that if I know that there's some real dark shit in someone's past, I'm smart enough. I mean, you guys interview people all the time. You're smart enough to know that you don't lead with that, right? On day one, you don't start with somebody's darkest moment. You build up 
a comfort level and a layer of familiarity before you can kind of ease into the difficult material naturally. So I'm going a long way around to answering your question, but the common denominator really is truth. You know, if you're going to write a book, it's kind of an intimate transaction. Think about the way you read. You read in the bathtub, you read on the shitter, you read in bed. It's a very intimate exchange. And you've been conditioned when you're reading memoir or a biography, you expect somebody to be completely forthcoming. And you could probably tell right away when they're either holding back or throwing you a line that's not genuine. So my job is to strip away at that in whatever ways I can. So that's really my primary objective. How do you know when you've found that truth? Does it feel like something? Is it like a light bulb and it's like, that's it? How does that feel when you discover that? You know, you kind of know it in your own life. Forget our writing lives or our interviewing lives. You kind of know it if you're sitting next to somebody at dinner party. You sort of say, oh, this guy's full of shit, I can tell whether it's their body language or whatever. And you can just see also by someone's body language, if they're telling you something and they're welling up, you know, and their voice chokes and there's a, you know, they pause in a meaningful way that does not seem dramatic, but that seems real. Then you kind of know that you're onto something. I did a book once with Anthony Quinn at the end of his life and career. He was still working. He was turning 80. At the end of his life, he did a couple of wonderful movies. He did that great Keanu Reeves movie, A Walk in the Clouds, which was one of Tony's last hurrahs on screen. And Tony was full of bluster. You know, he was this larger than life personality and he was full of shit a lot of the time. But that's kind of how he grew up. You know, he was a product of the studio system. He was married to Cecil B. DeMille's daughter. He just lived this swashbuckling movie star, you know, typical Hollywood movie star life. And he told me at one point that there were some prominent members of the, at this point, I can't even remember if it was the California Republican Party or the California Democratic Party. So forgive me for this one minor detail of the story, but party leaders were after him to consider running for governor of California. I guess California has a long history now, by now with Reagan and Schwarzenegger and, you know, pulling from, from Hollywood to fill their, their offices. But the way Tony was telling me this story, he sounded like he was completely piping this story. So it left me with a dilemma. What do I do? I couldn't find any record of this online, no confirmation from or corroboration from anybody else. But Tony believed this story and he told it full-throatedly and wholeheartedly and it was important to him. So what is my job? I'm there at his pleasure. I have to write what he wants. And the reason I went with that and sort of embraced it on his behalf was, you know what, the important thing for the reader is that Tony buys this that he believes this, that whether or not this actually went down 30 years ago as he remembers it is not as important that he remembered it this way now. And I had no doubt from the way he was telling me this story in 1996, I think it was, that this is actually what he remembers, even if it might not have happened in quite that way. So, you know, my bullshit detector was on but it was also off enough to forgive him this um, little bit of what might have been exaggeration. Right. You're there at his pleasure. You're writing for him. And maybe for Tony or for any of the many writers, that figures that you've written with, have you ever found that there's an ideological belief, like a different ideological belief that you've disagreed with something that they fundamentally believe in? And if so, how did you navigate that? There have been. I mean, I've written for people on the Republican side of the aisle, people on the Democratic side of the aisle. I happen to be 
a nice liberal Jew from New York, but I try not to let my politics or my agenda seep into these conversations. You know, my one layer of self-defense, if I really disagree with somebody and what they're putting out into the world is I can take my name off a project so that I'm not associated with it in any public way. If somebody is so onerous and objectionable to me that I don't even want to get my hands dirty and be involved at all to begin with, I can walk away from a project. That's never happened. In my rearview mirror, there are a couple of projects on my shelf that I'm no longer proud of having written, or at least I should say I question having written. One of them, I should point out, was a book I wrote with Ivanka Trump many years before her father ran for office, many years before she stepped to a role on the public stage that I didn't always love or appreciate in a way that if she had approached me at that point in her life, I would have passed on the opportunity to work with her. The Ivanka Trump I knew was lovely. She was young. She was in her late 20s. She was an entrepreneurial young woman, you know, trading to a large degree on her family name and her background and her context, but ostensibly writing a book about how to get ahead in business as, as a young woman. Forget for the moment that it might that book might have been built on a somewhat false conceit of, well, it helps if you're born with a name like Trump and with all the money in the world. You know, it's like being it's like being born on third base and, and announcing that you'd hit a triple, just to borrow a baseball metaphor since we started with baseball. But I found her to be lovely. She was professional. She was, and it's only now later after I saw what her father's career became and what, how the family looks in light of who her father became that I sort of regret contributing to the legend of Trump. You know, I've sort of helped in a small way to burnish that Trump brand a little bit by working on, on that book. So that's a little bit regrettable. So Matt, if that story came to me now, I would pass. But that story came to me 10 years ago, and it seemed like an interesting story. But again, I always have the option to either take my name off of project, to not get involved at all in the first place, or even to walk away midstream if it's, you know, if I'm finding that I'm really not liking the message that we seem to be putting out into the world. It seems to me, though, that ghostwriters must have to, you know, keep their ego aside in order to help the person in front of them to write their story. And so I appreciate there are the extreme examples, ones that you regret, but on the more, more sort of average examples where you maybe just disagree with a few things. I'm curious about just any thoughts on generally how you might keep your own beliefs, your own ego and your own agenda at bay when telling someone else's story. How do you keep your ego aside? You have to recognize that there is no place for ego, at least not for my ego in this project. If there is room for ego, it's the subject's ego, not mine. So I'm able to convince myself, as I have done for the last 30 or 40 years, that this is not my story to tell. This is not my agenda. This is not my noise to make. I'm there to make noise on behalf of this other person. What I always do, if I find something, A, that I don't think really serves my subject, forget that it doesn't serve my own point of view. If it doesn't serve them, I'll push back. I'll play devil's advocate. I'll say, are you sure that this is the image you want to put out into the world? Are you sure that this is the way you want to write that story. If it's something that I personally object to, I really, if I'm going to work on the project, I have to swallow that objection and I have to write it in the most favorable way I can for my client. You know, my job is to make them look good. My job is to, I think of these projects as I'm writing for audiences of one. I don't worry about who the readers are. I don't even worry about what the publisher wants. 
I want my celebrity subject, if it's a well-known person or whoever it is that I'm working for, I want them to come away satisfied with the project when we're finished. And if I've done that, I feel like I've done my job. If readers come along, that's kind of gravy. Now, that said, I don't always feel that it's my job to save my clients from themselves. And I could point to a specific example, if you'd like me to, from since we brought up Ivanka or since I brought up Ivanka, there was a pretty interesting anecdote in that Ivanka Trump book that she shared that didn't paint her father in the light that she thought she was painting him in. The story was that she was trying to make the point in her business book how important it was to be punctual. And she pointed to her father as her mentor in that regard. You know, my father was always on time for everything. It was like clockwork. You had to, you had to do things on the dot with him or you were gone. And to illustrate that, she told me a story of a shopping spree that she was on that involved the family plane or the company plane when he was married to Marla Maples, wife number two. And there was a wheels up directive from the Donald that the plane was going to take off at whatever time it was. Let's say it's two o'clock in the afternoon. And that was a hard and fast two o'clock in the afternoon. And Ivanka's on the plane and the Donald's on the plane and whoever else is on the plane and there's no Marla Maples. And sure enough, two o'clock, they fire up the engines and there's Marla Maples stepping out of her limo, driving onto the tarmac, shopping bags in hand, racing towards the plane as it rolls down the runway and takes off. And Ivanka tells me this story as an example of, you know, how wonderful it was that his father, her father held so hard and fast to that rule of punctuality and that it even extended to family and that if you were meant to be someplace at a certain time, you had better well be there. I hear that story thinking, Jesus, what the fuck is wrong with these people that you abandon your wife on the jetway and you see her on the runway and you see her running after the plane? So I pushed back. I said, you know, I said, are you sure that this is the story you want to tell to illustrate this point? He goes, absolutely. She said, absolutely. That's an important story. We tell that in our family all the time. So we put it out into the world and it did not reflect well on the Trump brand or on the Trump persona, but there it was. I had done my job. So between the lines, somehow I was able to maybe get a different point across, but it was only a point that she was prepared to make herself. Loving these stories. Daniel, I feel like you have, uh, we've only scratched the surface with all of them. We'd love to zoom out a little bit, maybe and talk some practicalities and some of the technical aspects of ghostwriting. And one very, maybe this is a stupid question, but when we see on the cover of a book with Daniel Paisner, and when it's absent from the cover of the book, what does that mean? It can mean anything. It often, it's a matter of contract. It can often mean that there's a perception on the part of the publisher that there's an expectation based on who the celebrity subject is, that readers might expect that person to write the book themselves, and you might put off potential readers if it looks like they had help. Sometimes that there might be more than one ghostwriter on a project, and if you're the second one to the party, even though you've done most of the work, it's very difficult to claim credit for some work that someone else has done as well. With has sort of become the conventional byline. When I was a kid, when I used to read books of this type, the convention was an as told to credit. That's where I get the title for my podcast, as told to. And that always sort of sounded to me as though the book was being dictated to somebody else. Sometimes you'll see and as a credit, but that gets very confusing because you never know whose first person voice you can expect to find between hardcovers. With seems fine. I'll often see as a matter of contract, 
it's stipulated what size my name needs to be in relation to the celebrity author. So it can mean any number of things. When you don't see the name, it doesn't necessarily mean that that subject wrote the book on their own. If you had to guess, how many celebrities, influential figures with their name on the book were actually written by them versus bringing someone like you in to write as a percentage, if you had to guess? Or maybe you know. It's hard to put a number on it. And I don't know that anybody has actually studied that because, of course, people will claim to have written a book by themselves, even though they had the help of an editor or a book doctor or somebody who helped in some way with the heavy lifting. What I've been able to develop over the years and what I'm sure any active reader would be able to develop is you can sort of see early on which books feel real and authentic and genuine and which book might have been filtered through someone like me. Of course, if I'm doing my job well, you're not supposed to see evidence of my work. It's supposed to feel genuine and raw and true. But there are sort of tricks. You can sort of see when someone is a practice storyteller and when someone is at it for the first time. I will tell you that there's probably a good number of people, especially talented creative types who either write screenplays or stand-up comedians or others who think they can write the book themselves and will start out trying to write the book themselves and give up the ghost after a while, either because their deadline is upon them or they just find the whole process unwieldy. I did a book like that once, for example, with Whoopi Goldberg, the very first book Whoopi wrote. She's written a few books, some children's books. She's a great storyteller. Her very first book, she was a, you know, she had a one-woman show. That's how she burst onto the scene. You know, she had a very fresh voice on the stage. She was a creative person and she thought she could write this book on her own and she had two years to deliver the book and 23 months and two weeks in she realized that wasn't going to happen and I got this kind of distress call from my agent to come in and see if I can turn that back into a book in two weeks which I was able to do and in that case the publisher wanted only Whoopi's name on the cover because of the reasons I articulated earlier people expect a Whoopi Goldberg book to be by Whoopi Goldberg Whoopi, to her great credit, actually wrote about that. She cried foul. She goes, why are we so unwilling to accept credit? You know, we get in this affirmative action is credit of a kind. Why are we shy about accepting credit? If somebody lends us a helping hand, let's acknowledge that helping hand. So she wrote a whole chapter. Granted, we only had two weeks and we had to fill these pages somehow. But she decided that we'd fill at least a few of those pages, which was essentially a large acknowledgement and a thank you to me. And a fuck you to the publisher by saying, I'm going to shine a light this guy's way, even though you don't want me to. So my name wasn't on the cover, but she wrote, with my help, this nice piece, sort of a think piece about what it means to accept help. So that was kind of cool. But in answer to your question, I really don't know how many folks go it alone. I would say that the overwhelming majority have an assist of some kind. Mm, makes sense. Well, you mentioned your podcast, and for anyone who is interested in ghostwriting, it's a wonderful podcast. It's called As Told To, but you've had over 20 conversations now with some of your friends that you've brought onto the podcast and some others. And I'm curious, having those conversations with those over 20 ghostwriters, plus all of your experience, are there any through lines or commonalities on what you think makes a great ghostwriter? Well, one of the commonalities, I don't know if this makes a great ghostwriter, but it does make a ghostwriter. <laughs> one of the commonalities is that nobody expected to be here. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It is not a career path that you step on knowingly or actively. 
it kind of finds you by happy accident. So almost everyone I've had on the show has a happy accident story to tell about how their first ghostwriting gig came about. So that's really the common through line. I've had people on the show who love this line of work. They sort of came to it, stiff arming it, and they thought maybe I'll do this for a little bit. I need the money. But they found that they loved it. And they found that it bought them the time they needed to work on their own material. I had a best-selling novelist, a terrific novelist who, you know, made a huge splash with her first book. Her subsequent book sold less and less and less. They were still getting published, but they weren't getting widely read. And she was frustrated and she had little bit of writer's block and couldn't really write. And she leaned into this type of work for a book or two, got her feet back, you know, got her um, footing back, made some money, and then was able to return to writing a best-selling novel. So, so these kinds of projects serve all kinds of different purposes for other collaborators that I've been speaking with. But the real common thread is that we all thought we were meant to be doing something else. So funny. And I guess that's the reality of what it means to be a writer and making sure you can support yourself while you continue to do the creative things that might not support you financially in the meantime. And I'm curious because I think we have quite a few people in the community here who might be like you, maybe a, a journalist, and they're curious about getting into ghost writing work. And obviously, you had the great fortune as a young man to have that first opportunity given to you. And then you've gone from strength to strength with that. But if you're advising someone, maybe they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and they want to start ghostwriting, are there any tips you'd give to someone? There's a catch-22 in getting started in this line of work, because obviously the first question you get back from a prospective client is, what else have you written on behalf of someone else? So if you've never done one of these books before, how do you get your first gig? It's the whole chicken and the egg syndrome. So my advice, really, when I talk to people who want to start out in this way, is to start small and to think small. Don't think about the Whoopi Goldbergs or the Serena Williams of the world. Think within your grasp. You know, go to conferences, find somebody who's a thought leader in a particular field, somebody who's a nutritionist or somebody who is works in the wellness community in some regard. Or if you want to write about athletes, write about a fringe sport that that doesn't get a lot of media attention with people by athletes who themselves don't get a lot of media attention or sponsorship deals. You need to find somebody to take a leap of faith with you because they don't have the deep pockets to bring on an experienced ghostwriter. So my advice to anybody who wants to get into this line of work is to think realistically. You know, don't think that you're going to be called in to help write the next big New York Times bestseller based on the latest headline that has occupied our shared attention for the last six months, you know, you sort of need to look in out-of-the-way places because you're asking someone to take a chance on you, just as you're taking a chance on them. You've never done this before either. So that's the key. The key takeaway, really, is to be realistic. You know, most of the people I know, most of the people who've been on my show have had a piece of good luck early on. Either they were a journalist and they had a good relationship doing a long form profile with somebody, or maybe they've interviewed somebody repeatedly over the years for a number of publications and they developed a rapport and a relationship and they were able to make the ask, or maybe the ask came to them. But to go out with hat in hand and say, hire me, let me help you write your book. You need to bring something to the table other than the fact that you're a talented writer. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm curious about the financial compensation that a ghostwriter might expect. And I recognize it must vary greatly. But I wonder if you can tell us anything around what a 
sort of newbie ghostwriter through to a more established ghostwriter, what what range of fees might they be looking at? You know, it varies greatly. And even at my stage where I can command a hefty fee for certain books, I often take very little money for books that I'm passionate about, books that I really want to write and books that I know won't get written if I insist on my usual fee. I wrote a book with a Holocaust survivor several years ago, which we found a major publisher to publish, St. Martin's, which is part of Macmillan. But there wasn't a large advance, and there certainly wasn't enough in it for me to pay myself the way I was accustomed at that stage to getting paid. But I figured, you know, I, I was duty-bound to help tell this story, and it was an honor to help bring this story out into the world, and it would be sort of a lost leader for me, and I'd overcharge someone on the next project. So a long way around of answering your question is there is no one set fee. You can have your quote, but then you need to be prepared to stray from that quote if it's a book you really want. I very often am contacted by anonymous people with maybe interesting stories to tell who want to engage me to help them. And they very magnanimously offer me half of their book and they think they're being very generous. And they say, oh, this is great. I'll share everything with you. Well, half of nothing is still nothing. So it's hard for me to make a living and to justify me taking myself out of the flow of the other work I could be doing for something speculative like that. However, if I was 25 again, and if I didn't have three kids and orthodontia bills and tuition bills or worry about making a wedding or, or paying the mortgage, if I'm at a different stage in my life, then I'm willing to speculate like that. So it depends on where your audience is, Parallel. If they're young writers looking to establish a bookshelf worth of credits, it's worth it to them to do a project like this on the come. When there's a fee involved, I often tell people on both sides of the desk, whether they are writers or whether they are celebrities or you know people who are looking for assists on these types of books, you should expect to pay your writer the same way you would pay any other professional that you would engage, whether that's an accountant or a lawyer. You know, Figure out what the scope of work is. Is it going to take them three months of real nine-to-five work? If so, you should pay that person based on what someone at their level in as an accountant would be able to get for three months of salary, because this is your salary for that stretch of time. So for someone, that number could be in U.S. dollars, that could mean, you know, 20 grand. For someone else, it could mean 75 grand or 175 grand. So it really depends on what your needs are. You can do very well if you have some success here. And if you're in demand, I'm fortunate enough that I'm in demand so I can ask for a high price. And if I don't get that price, I'll know that there'll be another project that might come my way in the next week or two or six where I will get that number. But again, it should really reflect what a salary of a young working professional would be to cover that same span of time. And it's insulting almost when publishers will look at a book proposal and say, oh, we love this book. We want to buy this book. We'll offer you $15,000 for this book. And the book is not yet written. How do they expect the book to get written for $15,000? You know, after agents are paid, after other expenses are met, if people have to travel to each other, and after you have to share what's left of the pie, what is their expectation there? It's a little bit unreasonable. Of course, they make the offer based on what they project sales to be, and they're being conservative and they're trying to cover their butts. But the writer needs to honor their ability to make a living, too. Yeah. So yes, work for peanuts if you're hungry and work for peanuts if it's a project you're passionate about. 
work for Peanuts if it's somebody that you are really interested in helping to advance his or her name or his or her cause. But put yourself first when none of those things are in play and make sure you get paid. Great. Thank you. Sage advice. I don't know about sage, but it's <laughs> it's advice. It's advice. <laughs> Maybe one more question around the ghostwriting, and then we do want to talk about your latest novel, Balloon Dog. You've mentioned this on a podcast that you had a ghostwriting group, a group of fellow ghostwriters, and maybe some of these are the ones that you interviewed first on your podcast. We're an online community all over the world, and we try to support each other through different means, whether it's writing sessions to gather to write, interviews like this, critique sessions. And I'm curious what happened in those, or what happens in those ghostwriting groups that you were a part of? And how did that help you personally, professionally, kind of stick with it? Well, there's probably a lot of what you see in your network of writers that you've put together, right? There's tremendous safety in numbers. There's a comfort in sharing experiences with like-minded souls and being able to, to swap stories from the front lines. So in addition to gaining specific tips and insights and strategies. We might share job leads. You know, many of us might get a call on a project that we either don't have time for or we're not interested in, and we'll share that with each other. We share horror stories if we're having, you know, particular trouble with a contract negotiation or if we're working with an agent who seems particularly unpleasant and we want the others to maybe steer clear of that person. So it's like any network of, you know, related tradesmen and craftsmen who share a common talent and who are barking up the same tree. But ultimately, over time, you build community. You start to care about each other and root for each other. So we're able to also stand as a support group of some kind. If somebody's struggling, we're able to help them see their way through a sticky project. Or maybe, you know, if you go back to one of your earlier questions, you know, how do you distance yourself from a point of view that you find objectionable? We might offer each other some support on how to get out of a difficult project. So I've belonged to a number of these groups over the years. The group I'm with now, we meet monthly, and there are about a dozen of us, and it's kind of great. Most of us have never met, although we're talking about going to a uh, writer's retreat together at some point next year and sort of uh, taking over the joint. <laughs> and uh, as long as there's alcohol involved, that sounds like it could be fun. But I think as most of the writers in your group will probably share, it's enormously helpful to lean on folks who are going through the same motions. But it doesn't function as a writer's group in other respects. We don't share work. We might share work off of our Zoom calls. I might pick up somebody's new book and call them up and say, hey, there was a whole lot to admire here. I really love the way you did this, or why did you make this choice? But it is not a workshop. It's more of a support group and a camaraderie group. Love it. You're speaking our language, <laughs> Daniel. Yeah, sounds so useful. I feel like every everyone, no matter what you're doing, having a support group of like-minded people is a good way forward. I think it might be might be time to talk about your book, your latest book. So Balloon Dog came out earlier this year. I think it was in June. Is that right? Yes, just a few weeks ago. I think it was in June. And um, it makes me happy. I do these books to make myself happy. These Going all the way back to Willard Scott, one of theirs and one of mine. And you know, I've written a few novels over the years, and they always sort of uh, put a charge into the rest of my work. It's a way to amuse myself and keep myself sane. Totally get that. And so, uh, yeah, I'd love to just talk a little bit about this. It's a literary fiction story about a brazen art heist gone sideways. And I read that this was inspired by something that you came across in real life, a real life situation. I wonder if you can just tell us about that, how this idea came about. 
Absolutely. So the book is about kind of a bungled theft of a Jeff Koons balloon dog sculpture. We've all seen these ubiquitous balloon dogs that are just balloon. I have one in the back on the shelf over there. They're just balloon dogs. They're balloon animals. They're nothing. And yet they fetch tens of millions of dollars in the marketplace. There are enormous ones, industrial size, that you'll see in public squares or in public building lobbies. And you'll see little tiny ones like this one. I happened to be visiting a friend of mine who had a fabulous sculpture on his front lawn. He happened to be way more successful than I was. And he wasn't home at the time. And one day we're there with another group of our friends and we're all kind of hung over. And a, um, a truck full of guys come and pull up at the house and they announce that they're there to remove the sculpture. There's like this four or $5 million sculpture on the front lawn. It was a mobile, it was kind of kinetic. And it was, we were coming upon the winter and it needed to be moved every year to get out of the elements. And we kind of knew this in the back of our mind sort of way, but nobody thought to check with the owner of the house if these guys are legit. And we're all thinking, oh, this is great. We're taking pictures of this crew with their crane and they're dismantling this, this world famous sculpture. And at some point in this, one of us has the presence of mind to call the homeowner and say, hey, dude, are these guys supposed to be here? Happily, they were legit. They were there with portfolio. But I had this idea of what, you know, that would be sort of a fun place to start a novel where if some group of bad guys, knowledgeable bad guys, art curator kind of bad guys, pulled off a heist like this in plain sight, what would happen? And the wheel started turning about a story like that. And it ultimately became an opportunity for me to reflect on the meaning of art and the value of art. You know, I, I peopled the story with a frustrated middle-aged writer from Long Island, hello, who can't get people to read his books. And to sort of wonder at this sort of point of midlife crisis, who decides what has value? Who decides what is worthy of our shared attentions, whether it's a work of fiction or a popular coveted sculpture like this one? So that was the territory I chose to mine here and uh, off to the races I went. And I read somewhere that it took you six months to write it before you turned to editing. Is that right? Six months? It was about six months. It was my first COVID summer project. So my wife and I also have a house uh, in the mountains when we're not living in the New York area. And we kind of decamped as soon as it was safe to travel and move about the planet. If you guys can think back to the spring of 2020. There was at some point where we were all still quarantining, but it was okay to get on a plane, we told ourselves. So we got on a plane and we went and we hid out in the mountains for the next several months. And I would wake up every morning and I would sit down and write this book. And it was a good place to put my energy and my frustration. Now, I was careful and mindful of the role COVID was playing in the world around. I didn't want to write a book about quarantine. So even though the book sort of explores the themes of isolation and aloneness and what it means to matter and be connected to other people, it wasn't really about the quarantine or about the pandemic. Because I thought, first of all, we didn't know how that story was going to end. Who knew if we were facing some apocalyptic end of humanity or what the future might hold? And I just thought that would make it too sort of science fiction-y and weird and something nobody would want to read. So we leaned away from COVID as a character. And six months seems awfully fast. You mentioned earlier that you can suffer writer's block if it's your own work. If I have an idea. So the story I told about this famous sculpture being lifted in front of us as we took selfies and watched, 
That happened maybe three or four years before this COVID summer. So the story was marinating for a while. I wasn't doing any active work. I was just kind of thinking it through, which is work of a kind, as your writers will tell you. You know, we're kind of always working and mapping out stories in our heads. But I didn't actually sit down and stare at a blank screen and attempt to fill it until COVID. And at that point, once I had the idea for a story, it came to me. Six months didn't feel long. It didn't feel short. It felt kind of like a reasonable sprint. It was great to have something to wake up to every morning. I would learn to to sort of write my way. I think I picked this up from reading a Hemingway biography when I was a kid. I used to love Hemingway. Hemingway did two things that I thought were very interesting and useful to the writer. The first I thought was stupid when I first read it, and that was his word count. He was obsessed with his word count at the end of each day. He would actually, and this was back in the day where you actually had to count the words. There was no word processing program to tabulate it for you. Uh, he would sit and count the words and say, this was a 938-word day. That's pretty good. I meant to do 1,000, so tomorrow I'm going to do. So I thought that was sort of weird and silly when I read it as a kid. But later on, I came to embrace that there's beauty and value to be had in giving yourself a marker like that, a milestone. It becomes a guidepost for the work. And now, of course, you can discover that word count with a stroke of your key, and it pops up. But the other thing he would do, and other writers do this too, is he would write his way into the next scene. And that way he would go to bed that night sort of knowing where the work might take him the next morning. So he had already kind of taken that first step. So if you think about where you might struggle as a writer when you're writing fiction, it often, for me, that moment comes in not knowing where to go next. If you don't let yourself leave your desk until you have some idea where you're going, it makes it a lot easier to start up the next day. Wonderful. More sage advice from Daniel. You know, we just got, we're just piling on the sage advice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, decades of ghostwriting and novel writing, is there anything that, or maybe how has ghostwriting helped you with the novel writing, if it has? I think it's given me discipline. You know, most of the books that I write in collaboration with other people have pretty firm deadlines. And that's either because there's a 15 minutes of fame story that we're trying to capture and we need to get it on the bookshelves while the story is still fresh before it turns stale. Maybe somebody's, you know, shelf life of popularity is going to wane and you need to, or you need to capitalize on a certain moment, a, you know, a public anniversary of some kind or a milestone of some kind. So it's given me discipline. I think the other thing it's helped me to do is to kind of cut through the bullshit and recognize what keeps people turning the page. Mm. You know, on the one hand, I have spoke earlier, these are lived stories. So it's not like we're creating moments of tension. The tension is either there or it's not. But what I've learned in telling stories on behalf of others is there are certain ways that you can tell a story that can bring the reader in and hold their attention. Think about the stories that you share in your own lives. You know, you probably have greatest hit stories of something you might have done in your past, stories that you've told over and over again. And you probably have a five-minute version of that story that you share with someone when you meet them at a cocktail party. You probably have a 10-minute conversation version of that story where if you're seated next to somebody at a dinner party, and maybe a half-hour version that you'll tell to somebody on a first date when you have their undivided attention. The book is really that last version. It's a detailed and layered version of a story that doesn't 
spare any of these nuts and bolts that help a story really stand. And as a storyteller, as a novelist, I've become very acutely aware of which version of a story I'm trying to tell. So I think I've been able to learn how to get to the heart of a beat that I want to share quickly, if that's what's warranted, if it's the stand-up at a cocktail party version of a story, if I'm just sort of driving the narrative forward, or if I really need to relax and take a breath and spend some time there, I've learned how to identify those moments. So I think it's helped in that regard too. Does that make sense? Or am I just spinning a lot of horseshit? (laughs) That does make sense. Makes total sense. You're right. We do spin stories, different versions of them based on our audience. Right. So it makes sense. I read somewhere that you, someone had asked you what advice you had for writers and you had said it was that they should write, read and live. And I'm particularly curious about the live element of this. I wondered, what does that look like for you? Well, you know, I have not lived a big life. I have not traveled the world. I don't, you know, climb mountains or or do any of these heroic kind of swashbuckling things. But you need to have something to write about, right? So most writers will tell you to read. That's kind of an easy knee-jerk response. Most writers will tell you to write, that you need to practice. You need to keep doing this. You can't expect to call yourself a writer if you don't, you know, sit down and stare at the blank page and find a way to slash your wrists and let the blood flow onto the page. But the piece that people don't often say is you really need to go out and do something or experience something in such a way that you have something to share, that you have a a piece of hard-won wisdom or a worldview that other people are going to care about. If you never leave your house and if all you do is gaze at your own navel, to me, whatever you produce is not going to be all that interesting. It might be beautifully written. There might be lovely flowerly prose and people might say, oh man, this guy can write. But who the hell's going to want to keep reading that unless you have something to say? So by live, I mean go out and do something. And that could mean marrying your high school sweetheart and starting a family together and growing up and making a life five or 10 minutes from where you grew up, which is kind of what I did. But, you know, you have to build something. Doesn't mean you have to write about what you built, but you need to sort of see what life is like and understand what it means to be disappointed, what it means to be devastated, what it means to be overjoyed. You know, the um, scope of human emotions need to have flowed through you in some meaningful way if you're going to be able to hold somebody's attention on the page. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for that answer. Well, thank you. (laughs) Daniel, well, we are at the end of our time. This has been incredible. We have We have requests for putting some of your quotes on some new mugs. So I think, needless to say, this has been a really inspiring and super useful conversation, Daniel. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me, both of you and all of you. This has really been a delightful conversation. And if you have any questions we didn't get to, I'm happy to answer them. If you you can find me through these guys, I'm sure they can find a way to get questions to me electronically. So. Where's the best place if someone did want to to get in touch? Is it? I exist on Twitter. I think it's Daniel Paisner on Twitter. So you can find me there. And those messages are open. So and I usually look at those. I have a website. You can contact me through that. That's my name, DanielPaisner.com. And um, that's what I got, guys. That's it. It's uh, it's been brilliant. It's been wonderful, Daniel. It's been such a wonderful conversation with you. Uh, Well, thank you. I'm glad you had me. I'm happy to be here. And tell all your friends about Balloon Dog. We will. (laughs) 
Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.